1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Wrightsis, thank you for listening. As the coronavirus pandemic continues, museums are getting creative in their efforts to showcase exhibits that had to close early. The Museum of Design Atlanta's exhibit, Learning from Nature, the Future of Design, had to close in March shortly after opening. Now they've launched an online version of the exhibition. We'll hear from executive director Laura Floosh later this hour about their virtual classes and workshops. But first, Grammy award-winning Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae has a new album coming out called Restoration. In it, he addresses societal issues through a Christian lens. I spoke with him last week via Zoom about his new singles, upcoming book, and philanthropic work in Atlanta. Steven Wiley is recognized as the first artist to have recorded a full-length Christian rap album in 1985, called *Bible Break*. The evolution of Christian hip hop has grown exponentially, but it hasn't been an easy path to forge. Lecrae, can you give us a brief overview of your journey into the hip hop scene?
2: Oh my gosh! Well, yeah, I, I grew up in hip hop culture, so when I say that, I mean like literally. Before kindergarten, I was a fan of hip hop. My cousins introduced it to me. Guys were dancing in the front yard, you know, listening to hip hop everywhere. So it was a part of my DNA. And I I wanted to be a rapper since I was about 11 years old. I love rapping, I love rap music. So I just, you know, every opportunity I got, I was listening to rap, I was writing raps, I was in class writing raps, I was consuming music videos, recording music videos, buying albums. Uh, it was just everything to me, you know, since like, since a kid.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've seen in interviews and read articles that you don't like to be labeled as a Christian rapper. How come?
2: Well, you know, that was actually a, a, a season of mine where I was I was pretty adamant about that. I'm not as particular about it now as I was then. I think at that point in time during my career, you know, there really weren't a lot of prominent Christian artists, Christian rap artists that the mainstream could reference that they that that weren't. A little cringe worthy for them, and so, uh, so you know, I was just kind of fighting for people to just accept my music for what it was, instead of having these presuppositions that I was gonna, you know, have a three point sermon in there or a choir, or I just wanted them to experience the music, and then uh, you know, obviously I'm a Christian, but I, I, I didn't want them to box my music in before they gave it a chance.
1: What do you think has changed since then, where you feel like you can openly say, yeah, I'm a Christian rapper? And you feel like people that don't listen to Christian music accept you.
2: Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, you know, certain people change the perception of things. And uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like the perception of it has changed uh, largely due to the contributions that myself and my peers have made to where people say, well, you know, I've heard some guys and these guys are amazing. Guys like myself and uh, NF and Andy Mineo have all had gold and platinum albums and number ones. And so I think people are more willing to say that these Christian uh, rap artists can make music as good as anybody else.
1: The evolution of your albums has kind of pivoted somewhat from the beginning. And in your albums, Church Close 1, 2, and 3, you kind of began pivoting your lyrics to reflect more on you know, racial issues, issues that were going on in the world. What inspired you to start rapping more about those topics?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I, I got to a place where I wanted to address things that were happening in society, and I wanted to talk about them from a different worldview, different vantage point. Most people look at things oftentimes when there's a circumstance or situation going on in, in the world from only a couple of different narratives or a couple of different perspectives, and I'm always trying to give a different vantage point, especially being a Christian. Um. Sometimes I think there's a unique vantage point that I may be able to give that people might not have considered. You know, some people may say, oh, man, 9-11 happened. And they'll say, OK, well, let's go to war. Or other people may say, let's shore up our defenses. Or some people may say, let's do something about our own government. And I would just jump in the middle to say, hey, let's consider prayer. Let's consider how do we love people from different walks of life and different perspectives. And so just kind of throwing out a third way and uh, on some social issues that were happening.
0: You old girl, the freak. Now, how's she singing a solo? I walked in the church with a snapback. and they telling me that that's a no-no? That's backwards, and I lack words for these actors called pastors. All these folks is hypocrites, and that's why I ain't at church. Truthfully, I'm just doing me, and I don't want to face no scrutiny. As long as the church keep wilding out, I can justify all my foolish deeds. Smoking with ill, pulling up, keep that lean up in my cup. Maybe I could change the world with no, on. My laptop got me stuck. Yeah, I know what's right for wrong. But that there ain't gonna sell a song I'd rather sell my soul than save it If that's what make my money long It better not be no real God With real hope that heals hearts It shows me that I ain't living up To all the things that he put me here for It better not be no real church Real saints who pray hard And let me rock my snapback With the 501s and the J-Zone It better not be no real folks Who don't think that they better than you Straight a gate, drunk or high They walk through the cold Whether with you Nah, we don't wanna see that, cause that might that's Life change that might mean I'm more. The money cost section type claims. Better not be no real Jesus. Real forgiveness is for hurt, folks. If God gonna take me as I am, I guess I already got on my church close.
1: Did you feel like you were getting any pushback from fan base to be talking about some bigger
2: issues? I think that a largely conservative Christian fan base definitely wants to make sure that. Anytime you're talking about social issues, that you mention the gospel, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, for for many of them, they can't process how things can change without the gospel. And I would say that the gospel is both uh, explicit and implicit. And so the gospel would inform my actions in many occasions as well. So, you know, case in point, I wouldn't get pushback if I said, hey, let's feed the poor. You know, it's like, hey, let's feed the poor. Everyone's like, yay, yay. When I say, wait, why are they poor? Then it's like, hey, 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 come on now. So uh, that's when it began to become more of a problem.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but would you say that your fan base, maybe at the beginning of your career, were mostly white evangelicals?
2: Yeah, well, at the peak of my career, for sure. I mean, um, the early stages of my career was pretty much all black it was you know very urban because i started off at these uh, urban camps and and whatnot and then what kind of rose me up in prominence or gave me more fan base was uh white evangelicals kind of getting a hold of the music and then from there absolutely they became the bulk of my fan base
1: how do you differentiate between political issues and christian issues in your music or do you think there is much of a difference or do they go hand in hand
2: yeah well The issue that I think people wrestle with is that oftentimes issues that I feel like are moral, ethical or biblical issues, uh, our society has made them into political ideologies. And so something that should just be a moral, ethical or biblical issue has been co-opted and made into a policy or an agenda. And so when you want to wrestle with that particular thing, you're accused of, of choosing a political side or picking a political agenda, when at the end of the day, loving your neighbor as yourself is not a political agenda, it's a, it's a biblical agenda. But that's the unfortunate part of our, our society is that we've, we've made these political ideologies. So uh, for a lot of people, they can't tell what I'm doing because they don't know how to see things from any other lens except a political lens.
1: Have you opened up your music to broader audiences, maybe more secular?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think just in the same way that people think you're claiming a political agenda, you know, that that, that works against and it works for you. You know, So when you start talking about issues of um, black lives or uh, racism, you know, of course a mainstream or liberal uh, mainstream audience would say, hey, he's on our team, you know, yes. And then when you start talking about issues that conservatives love, then they say, yes, he's on our team. But mainstream, oftentimes it's more so about authenticity. And I think a mainstream audience appreciates the authenticity that I display.
1: With your upcoming album Restoration, which will be released on August 21st, you touch upon a lot of mainstream topics that are currently in the media right now. Mental health, racial injustice, police brutality. How long were you working on this album?
2: It was a two year process. Two years of working on this album. I knew that I was going through my own personal journey of healing and restoration, and so I wasn't in a hurry to get it done. I I wanted the album to almost work in real time. I felt as if I was going through a process and I wanted the music to take people through that exact same process so that by the time the album is complete, the listener feels like they have a roadmap and an understanding of, you know, what a restorative process looks like.
1: Mm Did those themes become incorporated along the way while you were creating the album, or did you already know this is what I want to talk about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Those themes became very evident as I started writing. You know, I started initially just being transparent and saying, "Man, I messed up, and uh, I, I'm not gonna find healing unless I admit that I messed up. and so uh so that's where the music begins is me admitting that I need restoration. And then as I started, you know, peeling back the layers You know, this is this is two years of therapy Of good friends Of just a lot of introspective work That ends up coming out on this album
0: Pray this on me Pray this on me Let me go Let me go I've been going through so much I swear these people let my go That's on me, that's on mama On oh, my mama, I can't take no more So miss me with that drama Get your commas, get your red straight Get your fat I rise upon a lighter text rate keep my past straight never let faith got been working they gon have to hold me back man and tell them tell them you can pick a side if you wanna wanna you already know who I'm throwing You don't want no problems with me get these shackles, shackles off my, my feet yeah
1: they won't let me be can you unpack your single deep in and what you're referring to in the lyrics
2: Yeah, uh, Deep End was a song that initially wasn't, it was written in real time as well. It wasn't really meant to go on the album. It was just me trying to express myself. And, you know, it was one of those songs where I felt like, man, so much is happening all at one time. Societal unrest, the pandemic, racial injustice, cancel culture. And it was just so much weighing on my mind that, you know, I, I wanted to write something cathartic and say, hey, I feel like I'm going off the deep end but at the same time i believe that god is holding everything together and i want to you know lament it's a real-time song of lament that i wanted people to to be able to say wow i hear the pain uh, that he's experiencing and this pain that i'm currently experiencing or that i have experienced and i can relate to it
0: I've been trying not to oh, stay on point, point. I've been trying to save my voice, my but y'all voice. gay, me no choice. The world gone mad, can't ignore this noise. Look at these people found dead in the streets. I got some partners that hate the police. Me, yeah, I'm just trying to hold on to my peace because 'cause I'm liable to lose it and go get the peace. But I need a reason, I need a season, Played it with Jesus. 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 i need They be like, if you would, would you believe it? I do not trip. I keep it G. What in the H you say in the I? I don't check when I'm talking to God I don't need a reason to open my eyes If I'm still breathing, I'm running for my, Runnin for my. Yeah, I've been doing better than I was before I walk with the limp cause I've been wrestling with the Holy Ghost Deep into dirty spit, but still somehow I keep on floating uh. Thought I lost my grip, but God reminded me he's holy i the deep end
1: I really liked at the end in your lyrics how you said, if I'm still breathing, I'm running for Ahmaud. And that was kind of memorialization for Ahmaud Aubrey, who died earlier this year. So on the album, you have songs with artists like John Legend, BJ the Chicago Kid, and Marky e. Bassey. How do you normally decide who you want to collaborate with?
2: Oftentimes collaboration for me is about authenticity and You know, can we authentically connect on whatever subject we're talking about? So I would never force an artist who doesn't agree with the particular topic of the song to try to work on that song with me. I want to talk to artists who, you know, are passionate about these particular subjects and can relate. Similar to, you know, you you mentioned Marky Basie and him and I just were talking about man, how we navigate and wrestle with just feeling the pressures and we just want to get away sometimes. And so uh, you know the song comes out of that reality. Um, but but a lot of times too it's just I have to respect their music as well. So, so if I don't respect their catalog or I'm not a fan, I'm not just gonna do it just because, you know, they have a big name.
1: Right. Is it tricky collaborating with secular artists that don't necessarily talk about the gospel in their music?
2: Well again, for me, I would never ask an artist who wasn't passionate about faith or the gospel specifically to do music on that wavelength. I think you collaborate on things that are neutral or that are not affected by that topic. And so I would liken it to, you know, working on a school board or a board for an organization you know you work together with people on the school board to make sure that education is upheld and that uh that Spanish class is is happening and that children are not being taken advantage of and we can all agree on that. I think when it comes down to songs that are more explicit about my faith, those are songs that, that are particular and I and I would I want to make sure that the artist shares my belief before they start talking about anything along those lines unless the song is, you know, supposed to be contradictory and we're supposed to be kind of having a a conversation about how we disagree, then that would be a different type of song.
1: Can you talk about your latest single with John Legend, Drown?
2: Yeah, Drown was actually one of the first songs that was done for the album. Comes from a genuine place of, again, in the midst of needing restoration, you have to admit that you're broken. You have to admit that, man, I feel as if I'm drowning. I feel as if like the world all around me is going haywire and I don't know how I'm gonna be able to stand. And John and I, you know, got together, Uh, we we got some time in LA, we got some time over FaceTime just to collaborate and tweak the song. And, you know, it's one of those songs that I think apply to people in different ways at different times. You know, there are moments where I'm saying to God, like, where are you? I feel like I'm drowning. There are moments when I'm talking to my wife where I'm like, where are you? I feel like I'm drowning. And so, uh, you know, I think it's one of those type of songs where It can be very interchangeable depending on who you are and where you are and what moment you're in, you know, contextually.
1: And speaking of drowning, that's probably a feeling that a lot of people have right now with the coronavirus pandemic still going on. How has that affected you as an artist and creating this album during this time?
2: Yeah, it's been tough. I'm very collaborative. I love being around people and just feeding off the energy of people. And so it's been tough to, to be isolated, to have to do a lot of things alone at home. So that's been difficult. Uh, Fortunately, a lot of the creative process for the album was done before the coronavirus hit. But the hard part now is just figuring out how how we move on. Like, what is our new normal, you know, touring an album or performances, you know, all of those particular things are now just, just strange. And I'm not sure what that's gonna look like.
1: Christian hip hop artist, Lecrae. We'll be back with more of my conversation after a short break. You're listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
0: The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R I C H M O N T dot edu.
1: You love free. You're listening to City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, filling in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae. Since the coronavirus pandemic hit the U.S., Lecrae has partnered with several Atlanta nonprofit organizations, Love Beyond Walls, and Live Free USA's Faith in Action Mask for the People campaign. I began by asking him how he got involved in these partnerships.
2: I have always been extremely passionate about serving a disenfranchised uh, since I was a kid. My grandmother would take trips all around the city and even into Mexico to make sure that people who did not have and were underserved uh could be served and so that's always been a passion of mine as I've gotten busier I've always wanted to make time to do those particular things and um and just make sure that I have friends in those spaces who were involved in those particular endeavors and so um both Michael McBride with Mass for the People, Terrence Lester with Love Beyond Walls. Those are great friends of mine. And those are people I reach out to when I'm, I just want to know what's happening on the ground. Uh, I've gotten to serve with Terrence many times, serving people who are experiencing homelessness and raising awareness and um, gotten to work with, you know, Michael McBride on different projects and working in the prisons is just another passion of mine. That's how my career started. A lot of people don't know that. And so uh, that was just a natural overflow of relationships.
1: How did you participate in what they were doing with these two campaigns?
2: Yeah, initially, I just wanted to volunteer. I wasn't, I I did not anticipate there being a campaign. But then, you know, you realize that me showing up to volunteer carries more weight. So, you know, as far as volunteering, I just wanted to, hey, how can I make sure that people experiencing homelessness can wash their hands, can eat? How can I make sure that prisoners during COVID are taken care of? And then you realize like, well, you know what? I may have more to offer than just my hands and feet. I have a, a platform that can raise awareness. So let's go ahead and, and use my platform to raise awareness and campaign for some greater change.
1: And can you just talk a little bit about what Love Beyond Walls did in relation to the sinks that they put around Atlanta? Yeah. So
2: Love Beyond Walls, you know, Terrence Lester had an idea to have handwashing stations around the city and he didn't have any. And I said, well, Well, let's let's go get them. You know, I I wanted to make sure we started off with the initial 15. So there are 15 of them around the city. And then after that, it uh, moved up to 30. And then so uh, the campaign got so large to where now there are uh, handwashing stations around the world. I mean, it got as far as Australia, which was amazing.
1: Wow. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. So it was just, you know, Atlanta led the way in that endeavor, which was awesome.
1: And then masks for the people, you guys handed out masks to people in the Fulton County Jail? Yeah,
2: so Fulton County Jail for the essential workers, for the incarcerated individuals, and then also for frontline workers and people, you know, who are just dealing with life and needed access to hand sanitizer. And, you know, you would think that hand sanitizer and face masks are readily available for everyone. But for some certain people, they're just very hard to come by. I, I talked to a group of guys. Uh, who were living on the streets uh, the other day. And, you know, they were just very fortunate to get the masks and get the hand sanitizer. It was a big deal for them as well.
1: So, you have a book coming out in October called I Am Restored How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith. Very powerful title. Where does this book pick up from your previous one, Unashamed, that it left off from a few years ago?
2: Yeah, I think when you read Unashamed, you hear this kid who. Has talked about all of his childhood traumas and and how it's made him who he is, and he's going to be unashamed to move forward in this world. And then, you know, that same individual now has a number one album and is thrust into the corners of hanging out with, you know, Kanye West and Jay Z, and and is now thrust into political landscapes and and asked to choose a side or uh, politically and talk dealing with racial issues and and uh, marital issues. And so all of those things that most people would look at and say, let's not talk about those. I'm saying, no, let's absolutely talk about them because they helped shape me into the person that I am today. And I want to walk people through how I navigated all of these chaotic moments because I feel like it may be healing for people. Uh, How do you navigate being in the public eye and having to grow relationally, spiritually, racially, politically? How do you deal with the mistakes that you've made and how do you deal with the triumphs and the injustices? And so uh, this book helps people navigate those particular aspects of life.
1: Mm -hmm. So speaking of having open and honest conversations about racial inequality and things that are currently in the political sphere right now. On June 15th, Louis Giglio, the lead pastor of Passion City Church, a mega church here in Atlanta, invited you and Chick-fil-A CEO Dan Cathy on stage to talk live about race and the evangelical church. For those who didn't see the video, at one point, Louis was discussing the term white privilege and how that term is a hard pill for white people to swallow. So he suggested that if the word's so difficult to adjust to, then maybe we should just call it white blessings. And that phrase sparked a lot of controversy over social media, and it went viral in a matter of hours. I know for him, I know for you. And first off, I just wanted to ask you how you felt to be on stage in that position as really the only black man on that stage.
2: Yeah. If I'm honest, it was shocking. It was, it was difficult. And I think about it hindsight, 2020, you know, it was really, I mean, there was no win in that situation for me, as far as that was concerned. It was just an overwhelming circumstance where, you know, privately, I think it's easier to help people fill in gaps in their understanding and correct people uh, when, when statements are made that are painful, hurtful. And publicly, it puts you at a humongous disadvantage because now you, you know, you're thinking about a million things at one time. You've heard something that has caught you off guard, and you're thinking about how do you respond, and you're thinking about, oh, okay, wait a minute. What does he mean? Is he sincere? Is he not sincere? Not? And so there's so many things swirling in your head, and it was just a really impossible circumstance to, to deal with uh, for me in that situation.
1: Now that you've had time to kind of reflect on what he said, what are your thoughts about him using that term?
2: Well, obviously, I don't I don't think it was appropriate. I think that the idea of wanting to change white privilege is is a form of privilege in and of itself. You know what I mean? I think that there's gaps. You know, we all have gaps in our understanding, and our and our processing. And I think uh, those gaps are it's best for us to work those out privately before we stand up and speak as if for experts on particular subjects, because we can do a lot of damage. And, um, and I think that's ultimately what happened is, you know, damage was done because of the, the candor, which, which some of these things were, were spoken about moving forward. I mean, my advice for all of, you know, it's for white leaders, obviously as you're speaking about race and people of color, but it's for all leaders when you're talking about areas uh, that, you, that you don't live and breathe in. If I were to, to have a dialogue about homosexuality as a straight man, I would be doing way more listening than talking just because I wanna learn and I wanna hear from the vantage point of people who live this out every day. And I think that's more of the posture that uh, should be taken in these situations.
1: Have you and Louie been able to discuss what had happened since the incident?
2: Yeah, we talked um, after the incident. And, you know, my, my commentary for him was to continue to take it seriously and to learn um, because, you know, people will think it's a virtue signal. People will think, oh, you just had Lecrae on here so that you can look like you care about these particular topics. And if that's not the case, then, you know, you'll continue doing the work for the long haul. It's, it's a lifelong journey.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for white evangelicals that, are looking to bridge the gap in their communities?
2: Yeah, a lot of listening, a lot of empathy, a lot of listening. The issue at hand is that oftentimes when white evangelicals confront issues of race, their their entire worldview is being shaken. And so it's very difficult to have your worldview shaken without feeling abrasive or feeling defensive. And so uh, I would say, be prepared to have your worldview shaken and that be okay. I mean, it, it, we have to have our worldviews kind of destructed and, and rebuilt. That's a, a part of being a, a believer. That's a part of being a Christian is that you embrace that. Oh my goodness, I saw the world one way and now I, I have to see it a different way. And that's a lifelong journey. Uh, we see through dim glasses that hopefully one day we'll see clearly, but you've got to be patient. You've got to be empathetic. You've got to listen and then you got to take action white evangelicals have got to go beyond having conversations and move from conversation into implementation
1: so i have to ask what's next for lecrae will hip-hop and rap remain your main focus in the future or will you be focusing on new philanthropic opportunities
2: you know um i think music will always be a part of who i am and what i do I think, end of the day, music is a a mode of communication for me. I'm a communicator. I'm a thought leader. And I use music to do that. I use writings and books to do that, speaking opportunities. And so you'll always hear me uh, using my voice to communicate about things that are are important in society. The mode by which I'll do that uh, may change. So we'll we'll have to stand by and see.
1: That was Grammy Award-winning Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae. His new album, Restoration, will be released August 21st. You can find his new singles on any major music platform. In just a few minutes, we'll hear from Moda's executive director, Laura Floosh, about their virtual programming. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE.
3: Have you heard an interview on City Lights that you would like to share with a friend or listen to again? wabe.org/citylights is the place to find today's interview as well as segments from previous shows. We invite you to search, stream, and share your favorite show at wabe.org/citylights. And thanks for listening.
1: Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta, began a year-long initiative focusing on nature-inspired solutions to human challenges. The first exhibition, Learning from Nature, The Future of Design, was open to the public for only a few weeks before shelter in place. As of last week, they were able to launch an online version of the exhibition. They also offer their educational programs and workshops online. In April, I spoke with Moda's executive director, Laura Floosh, about transitioning the museum to an online platform.
3: So, most of us were in the office that morning and we sat down and had a team meeting and talked about. What were our strengths? What ways did we think we could use those strengths to serve the community and and bring value to people in this time? And then we divided up tasks and went. It was it was fast.
1: Can you walk us through some of the online workshops and activities that children eight through 18 can participate in?
3: Sure. Most of MOTA's educational programming operates at the intersection of design thinking and STEM technologies. And so what we have been doing is taking the classes and the workshops and the camps that we generally offer in real life or in person and adapting them to be delivered online. So for example, we have weekly Minecraft meetups. And in those classes, young designers are not just playing Minecraft, they're actually using Minecraft as a CAD tool. So CAD is computer-aided design, a way of designing used by architects and lots of other designers. And they are being challenged by our instructor to learn the principles of, say, sustainability and to collaborate to build a sustainable city um, that is respectful of conditions on that that we have to create to take care of the earth. In other classes, they're learning coding because you can use code in Minecraft in order to build faster and bigger structures. So we're teaching them some coding while they're building together. We are also offering an online biomimicry challenge. So just a, a few weeks ago, or just a few weeks before we had closed, we opened an exhibition called Learning from Nature, the Future of Design, which is about biomimicry as a design strategy. And what that means is it it has to do with the idea that nature has had 3.8 billion years to figure out how to solve problems that humans are also sometimes trying to figure out how to solve. And looking at how nature solves problems and learning from that and applying those solutions um, is something that increasingly designers are doing because it helps us build sustainable systems and buildings and, and so on. And so we have an online tutorial for young designers who want to learn about biomimicry and then we challenge them to design something that is informed by nature themselves. We have other amazing things. Um, We are doing 3D design online. So again, uh, teaching kids to use another simple CAD program uh, which is called Tinkercad to design an object that then, if they want to, they can send off and have 3D printed by someone who does that. And we provide them with those resources. We also have some interesting things we're rolling out, things about circuitry and coding using virtual Arduinos, which are microcomputers, as well as some really fun classes for kids who are, like all of us, kind of stuck at home, and they're called Hack Your Home. And they uh, walk young designers through the process of looking at how their house works. Probably that's changed in the environment that we're in. Thinking about what works and what doesn't. Um, What could improve their experience and the experience of the people they live with. And then working on some of those things through a series of classes. And some of them might be very serious things, like, I need a quiet place to study. Let's figure this out. Or others might be silly things, like, wouldn't it be fun for there to be an area only for kids, and how can we figure out (laughs) this
1: Wow, that's a wide range of topics that you guys are covering. I also saw that there's going to be activities and educational information for adults to access online. What are some of those online classes and workshops?
3: We have a variety of online classes and workshops and tutorials for adults and more rolling out every day. The first one that we did was we reached out to someone we'd partnered with before who's goes by the social media name, Badass Cross Stitch. Her name is Shannon Downey. She's in Chicago. And she worked with us a few years ago on a crowdsourced embroidery project. And we had seen that she was distributing an embroidery pattern that says, wash your hands and don't be a racist. And we thought that was both perfect and fitting for the time that we're in. So we worked with her to build an online self-guided tutorial that teaches you how to do the stitches you need to do and how to get the pattern and what materials you need in order to complete that embroidery. We are partnering with another organization called Orange Sparkle Ball. They are a design firm in town with a great name. And we're offering some classes in storytelling and social entrepreneurship online. So if people are looking in this time, thinking about, growing their business or developing their skills um, in those areas. Those are great offerings. And then we'll be rolling out an initiative called Drink and Design, by which we will be offering virtual visits with designers in Atlanta and a few beyond, finding out what they're working on, how they got to where they are now, and also maybe getting a peek into the space that they're working in in this unusual time.
1: How did Moda decide what topics they wanted the courses to cover online?
3: I'd say that's a constant and ongoing process. But what we understood when we realized that the doors needed to close and we needed and wanted to keep operating, what we understood is that we, there were things we were already very good at and that it would be of value to our community in this time. And we decided that the most efficient and effective thing we could do was to play to our strengths and to take what we already have honed uh, in real life and building online applications for that. So that drove a lot of the first things that we're doing. And as we're getting more and more experience teaching online and listening to the young designers and the parents, who are using these resources to help fill education gaps and and keep kids excited about learning, even when they can't go to school. We are developing things that are responding to their interests and the situations that they're in, like the Hack Your Home class, and then often looking at what our educators are great at and what they're passionate about and how that can translate to sharing processes with young designers.
1: Laura Flusch, Moda's Executive Director. Their latest exhibit, Learning from Nature, the Future of Design, is now available online in a 3D virtual format. Artist and craftsman Pajo has made a name for himself, building fantasy coffins in Ghana, fantastical works of art handcrafted in whatever style the buyer wants. The High Museum's exhibition, The Gates of No Return, highlights more somber aspects of his work, wood sculptures modeled after the many slave fortresses that line the coast of Ghana, Katie Jentleson, curator of folk and self-taught art at the High Museum, spoke with Lois Reitzes back in March, when the exhibition made its debut. Katie began by explaining how Pajo got his start as an artist.
4: So Pajo is somebody who was trained in the workshop of another artist, Kane Quay. Kane Quay was his mother's cousin, and Kane Quay is really the person who's credited with pioneering the tradition of making figurative or fantasy coffins in southern Ghana. And so Pajo, as a very young man, began apprenticing in his workshop and then set up his own workshop a few decades later and has since then created more than 2,000 coffins for members of his community, um, also some that are now in major art museums all over the country.
5: And in fact, here in Atlanta... There were fantasy coffins of Ghana on view during the Olympics.
4: Ah.
5: Now, Gates of No Return is not about anything whimsical. What is the significance of the title?
4: The title refers to passageways within the buildings that Pajo has sculpted. And they're the passageways that millions of African people who were enslaved were forced through as they left these trading forts that were set up all along Ghana's coastline between the late 15th and the 18th centuries by different European nations. And so the Gates of No Return, they were the places that were often on the side of the fortress that faced the water So that people could be moved directly from the dungeons of these fortresses where they were kept under terrible squalid conditions directly onto the ships that would take them to the New World, to South America, the Caribbean, and North America during the height of the international slave trade.
5: What themes are present in this art?
4: So this is a series of work that Pajo did beginning in 2004, and he began visiting the fortresses that are all along the coastline in Ghana. And these fortresses, there were many, many, many of them. There were actually more than 80 of them, again, during the height of this imperial era when European powers were staking claims all along what is now present-day Ghana. And so there were more than 80 of these fortresses. Pajo took on 13 of them in this series of work, and we have seven of them here at the High Museum. And he visited all 13 and documented them through photographs and drawings that he made of their complex architectural forms. The fortresses, and some are referred to as castles because of their large size, and the degree to which they actually imitate the architecture of European medieval castles. Uh These works are models of places that still exist in Ghana. They're not scale models. You know, he wasn't working at a level of detail where he was measuring every yard, um, every square foot. But they certainly convey the kind of complexity, again, of these architectural complexes and really the iconic attributes of them, which are generally their kind of whitewashed walls the tall towers where people kept watch and protected the forts from competing European powers who were always trying to take them away from each other, essentially. And Pajo also recorded, where possible, the gates of no return. So you can actually see that where he painted them um, on some of the sculptures themselves.
5: You mentioned one piece that particularly stands out with its intricate level of detail is the Cape Coast yeah. Castle. Can you talk about the artistic process involved in making this?
4: So has said of his process that he visited some of the castles many times. Cape Coast Castle was one of those that he was able to go to different times because he He lives fairly close to it. And Cape Coast Castle is one of the largest fortifications that was established on the coastline in the 16th century. It is very complex in real life, the actual fortress itself, because of the nature of how the cliff is formed on that stretch of coastline. So it stretches over and occupies this jagged area of rock. And so for that reason, in part, it has a very strange shape. It's kind of pentagonal, many different angles striking out in different places. And Pajo really, with this sculpture in particular, captured this memorable architecture. In other areas, he was not so precise. And he has said that though he did travel to these sites and take photographs and make drawings, he was really working from the blueprint in his mind and the kind of emotional experience of these places. I've never been to one, so I cannot speak from experience. But in curating the show, I've met many people who have been and who speak to the harrowing atmosphere that one still feels being in the midst of these places that have seen so much trauma unfold between their walls.
5: You've said that Pajo's work allows our audiences to encounter places Mm. whose histories may not be as well known as they should be. Would you further explain?
4: Sure. I grew up, I went to a public school outside of D.C. and I had a very, enjoyed a very progressive education where we learned a lot about colonialism and imperialism and the history of slavery. But I have to say that the first time I ever encountered these fortresses or images of them was when I first came to Paggio's exhibition when it was shown in New York at the American Folk Art Museum because they organized this exhibition originally and we brought it to the High Museum this spring. For me, that was a real wake-up call that slavery didn't begin with the Middle Passage. It began in Africa, and the trauma of it began on that side of the world and in places like these. The Ghanaian government oversees the management of a lot of these sites, of a lot of these fortifications and castles today. They've repurposed them for many different uses. So some of them are post offices, some of them are lighthouses because they're right on the coastline. But many of them are used in tourism as these kind of destinations, especially for Pan-African tourism. So things like the Year of Return, which we've been hearing about for the past year, And so places like Cape Coast Castle, which we were talking about before, have become the kind of cornerstones of this kind of Pan-African ancestral tourism experience which is not something that is geared at me being a white woman. But whether you're white or, you know, of African descent or really wherever you come from, the history of slavery is so pervasive in defining a modernity. So that was really, for me, part of why I felt it was really important to bring the show to Atlanta with our huge, amazing population of people of African descent, who I'm learning many people have done the year of return and gone back to Ghana and gone back to other places in Africa. But for many people, that's not possible. And so it's an opportunity to, at least through Pajo's work, try to confront and bear witness to the histories that are implicated by these places. Mm.
5: Can you tell us about the resources available that help provide context for the exhibition?
4: We really wanted to make sure that people were able to make the connection between these places and our own region. And so we developed a very large map that shows the routes that ships took after they left these fortresses. So the seven fortresses that are in exhibition, you can see on this map where the ships went after they left those places. And the vast majority went to South America and the Caribbean. But there are some documented routes where these ships were leaving these fortresses and coming to Charleston That shows our audiences just the extent to which we're connected to the Gold Coast. And then we also developed an interactive tool uh, that can be accessed via an iPad in the galleries, one of which is an incredible time-lapse video that was developed by slavevoyages.org. This is a project that's run out of Emory that's a massive and incredible Free database, and it compiles all of the information that we have about the transatlantic slave trade through documents like ships' registers and court documents. And so we use that database to find things like the routes that we illustrate in the map. And then this organization at Emory, Slave Voyages, they've created a time lapse video where you can actually see over time. All of the different ships' movements from Africa, not just the Gold Coast, but from all over the continent, and where they went elsewhere in the world. That's where our interactive iPad begins, is with this kind of macro view of the transatlantic slave trade. And then you can click through it and encounter a map of Atlanta, where you see sites all around the city that have a relationship to the history of slavery. Have you
5: observed people in the galleries
4: it's a powerful experience for many of people that i've encountered and and one of the things that tends to stop people in their tracks is the first gallery uh, you encounter a little introduction and this very large imposing castle christiansburg castle and then in the second gallery you get to experience three different fortresses and cape coast castle and all around you you're surrounded by the names of real african people who were forced to leave through the gates of no return. And so there's about 730 names on the walls of people who were forced to leave Africa from the Gold Coast fortresses. And those names have been aggregated by uh, Slave Voyages, this database that I keep mentioning. They have a database within themselves called the African Names Database, which draws on very little documentation that we do have of the individual. It's estimated that more than 12.5 million people were trafficked during the slave trade. And this database, African Names, has the names of around 92,000, which is just really, you know, a mere fraction. To be able to name name individuals, to be able to honor what they suffered through, it was something that we felt it was important to do in the context of the exhibition because Pajo's sculptures are... About places, and they're about architectures, and then all of the additional information that we added to the show gives you uh, abstract figures uh, about enslaved people and and the the scale and scope of the slave trade. But the memorial wall is really supposed to help you remember and honor the individual lives,
5: connect to the humanity.
4: Yeah, and I have
5: through the inhumanity
4: exactly. And I have definitely seen, you know, more than a few people get a, a little emotional um, in those galleries. You know, Pajo's sculptures are about memorializing humanity at its kind of basis, at its most cruel, at its most terrible. It shows the things that we can do to each other, which are unfathomable. But his transformation of these places, you know, through his own artistic practice... And not just that, through an artistic pra- practice that actually comes out of Ghanaian independence because the fantasy f- or figurative coffin tradition is something that only flourished after Ghana achieved independence from Britain in 1957. For him to transform this basis side of humanity through one of our highest faculties, which is you know creativity and empathy, our ability to share and have collective experience and collective memory, this is an amazing duality to these sculptures. And so even as they're about Subject matter that is so emotionally intense and just you know can really be gutting um, as you're standing there thinking about it all, you're lifted back up by um, the power of art you know to do these to do these things for us as humans.
1: Katie Jernison, curator of folk and self-taught art at the High Museum of Art, Paul Joe, The Gates of No Return, is currently on display at the High and online through August sixteenth. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 with Melissa Arasi of the Atlanta Women's Chorus. She'll discuss their upcoming concert, She Rises, a virtual celebration of the 100th anniversary of Women's Right to Vote. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and myself. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and our host is Lois Reitzis. I'd love it if you'd follow her on Twitter at... L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at org slash City Lights. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.